This talk is brought to you by the Thomistic Institute. For more talks like this, visit us at ThomisticInstitute.org. So we start with a question. You can see, and the question is, where is God? And as you know, this question, if you want, uh, echoes uh, throughout human history. And uh, from Homer to Shakespeare, the base of the literature deals with this particular question. And of course, this is a question which is also at the core of a book, which has likely been associated with these classics. That is, of course, Tolkien's The Lord of the Rings. And that God question, the question about God, has something to do with the Lord of the Rings. is very difficult to deny. And, I'm, and this is uh, the quote I'm going to read, uh, uh, the only quote I'm going to read, which I also read last Thursday. Uh, and this is the quote you find in number zero on the handout, the sort of introduction, because uh, uh, Tolkien himself uh, described the Lord of the Rings uh, as having been built uh, on or out certain religious idea, focusing on conflicts about God in some as a fundamentally religious and Catholic work. And yet, for the people who have read the Lord of the Rings, you will know that uh, God is never mentioned. In fact, in the Lord of the Rings, uh, again, that will be a topic for another question. It's mentioned once, but again, another time you invite me, I will say where it is mentioned. But in general, it's almost never mentioned. And Tolkien remarked in the famous quote I'm going to read first, I put not put in or cut out practically all references to anything like religion, to cults or practices in the imaginary world for the religious element is absorbed into the story and the symbolism. And following Tolkien's words, many books, uh, especially in the past 20 years, have tried uh, to distill the religious element out of the story. And in doing so, they often have approached the Lord of the Rings as an allegory. And uh, again, I'm going to talk a bit about that, but later on. What for me is very important to say is that uh, um, today I'm not going to talk... Uh, I'm not going to take up this sort of approach, an approach which, as you can see, for instance, uh, again, still on number 0A on the handout, uh, approaches that have tried to identify, for instance, uh, the Christ-type uh, uh, figure, realization and characters such as a Gandalf of Aragon, the Eucharistic symbolism of the Lembas, uh, many other Christian elements. Elber, um, Galadriel is a bit like a Mary figure and so on. Uh, this is a good approach, but that's not the approach I will take in this paper, so forget about that. So I will not talk about the God in the primary world to introduce a very important distinction that you have in Tolkien. Tolkien, you know, talks about the primary world, our world, and he talks about the secondary world, that is to say the world, the internal world, the world of his mythology. The two worlds are, of course, related, and if you want the relationship between the two worlds is the most complicated issue, but today, at least as a start, I will talk about God in the secondary world. Can I ask you how many of you have not read the Silmarillion? Okay, so that's good. Otherwise, I will skip this section, but I will not skip this section and give you a bit of background. Because we know, in fact, and then moving to number 0B on the handout, that in the Silmarillion, especially, there is a very explicit uh, theology. There is a God, one God. And in fact, there are many gods with uh, lowercase g. There is a very complex theology which underpins uh, Tolkien's imaginary universe, and in the Silmarillion it is very open. If the people have read it, will know what I'm talking about. For the other people, I will give you a very short summary of this theology, and according to this, there is a single superior being, known as Eru or Iluvatar, who created a number of secondary divine powers, known as Ainu or better Valar, and with this Valar, and through this Valar, uh, Iluvatar subsequently brought into existence the word Ea or Arda. Ea is a bit like the fiat in uh, Latin. 
this Valar, this Ainoir, embodied within Arda, they enter Arda, and together they angelic like assistants who are known as Maya. Uh, they inhabit a sort of Eden like region in the western side of Ar Arda, it is known as Valinor or the West. And in Arda, and I ask you to follow the handout, these Valar exercise delegated authority in their spheres, and I just quote, and this includes water, wind, uh, mountains, uh, earth, and so on. They are very similar, in fact, and in fact, they are identified with the myth Greeks, uh, the gods of the myth classical tradition. Talking in a couple of letters really says these are the same characters, not similar, the same characters, or at least uh, some sort of same. There's, that's another complicated issue. But let's say for now they are similar characters to the Greek mythology. In fact, in the Silmarillion, just like in classical epic, uh, the Valar are characters to all effects. They speak, they fight, they interact with each other, and with the anthropomorphic races who live in Arda, of course, especially elves and men. These are already stress an important point. Elves and men are the special object of the love of the Valar. These angelic-like figures love human, human and elvish beings because it's very important, because they were created only by Eru. These are the only two beings that were created without the participation of the Valar. The Valar participated in the creation of everything else in history, whereas not in, uh, um, in the creation of the elves and of the men. And that's why they love them, and they're introduced already an important point. They are other from them. There is something which is other. And yet these others live in the same world they have created. I'll come back on this. This Iluvatar, this single god, does not inhabit Arda, so it's outside Arda, so there is no incarnation whatsoever. And yet Eru, Iluvatar, cares about the world, and at times, as we're going to see, intervenes in its history. Another important point, moving down the, on the handout, Iluvatar and Devala are the object of religious veneration in the Cimmerillion. The elves are, most of the elves are devoted to them, and in fact, many have lived together with them in the same place in Valinor, following an ancestral summoning by the Valar themselves. The Valar have summoned the elves to Valinor, and they have gone to Valdor. Also, human beings, men, know about the existence of the Valar, and they worship the Valar. And some of them, in particular, the Numenoreans, the elvenized men, have a proper religious system dedicated to Luvatar. Very complex, I will say. And they have temples to the Valar, a temple to Iluvara, which involves praying, feasting, sacrificing. It's a, it's a proper religion, if you want. I will not discuss all the implications of this theology here, but I just wanted to say that in the Silmarillion, the divine God is an important narrative presence. It's very present. It's impossible to avoid uh, hearing about God because God is a character. The Lord of the Rings is set in the same world as the Silmarillion, a few millennia in the future, and in a different part of the world, in the eastern, not in the western part. The world is the same, and yet for the people of you who have read The Lord of the Rings, who has not read The Lord of the Rings? Good. Otherwise, I will give you all some of The Lord of the Rings, and it will be long. So but for the people, all of you who have read The Lord of the Rings, you will see that the religious dimension has been almost completely removed. In The Lord of the Rings, there is no open interaction between gods and humans. I say humans, I mean elves and men for the sake of uh, uh, getting a, a bit simplified, for the sake of simplification. If God and the gods are still alive in Middle-earth, they apparently have ceased to care about Middle-earth and vice versa. 
I've used a few qualifiers. If you noticed, explicitly, almost open, which are crucial qualifiers. And basically, we'll devote the rest of my paper to explain why I've used these qualifiers and what do they mean for talking. Why it's almost uh, absent, why it is uh, not explicitly present, but it is in fact present. Now we'll ask you to we move, start moving down number one on A on the handout. There are in fact in the Lord of the Rings a very few explicit references to religion. Again, very briefly, you may remember that the people of Gondor who descend from the Numenorians preserve some vestiges of their ancient devotion to the Valar. That's number one A on the handout. Uh, you may remember uh, this episode which I put there where there are two Gondorian warriors who openly invoke the gods, the Valar, with their output of K formula. And if you turn the page, you may also remember number 1B, the famous episode of, the, of Grace when Frodo and Sam are kind of, uh, as, a, as, as a Tolkien says in the passage of Putter, uh, they feel strangely rusticated and tutored in front of the Grace moment of the Numenoreans. Uh, and it's quite clear that they are really praying the Valar because Faramir says that they will pray towards Numero the Walls and beyond to Elvenon that is Valinor and to which is beyond Elvenon and it's really Ilúvatar, God. This is really beyond Elvenon means God because Elvenon means Valinor. Also the elves of course invoke the protection of the Valar and above all of their queen who is named as you may remember Elbereth, number 1c. There is one short hymn, a proper prayer, a liturgical hymn to Elbereth in the Lord of the Rings. And there is also a song famously sung by Galadriel at the end of the Lorien episodes. It's also important, and I stress that this song is sung in Elvish, and Frodo does not fully understand it. And as, uh, as the text says in uh, number 1c, it is only interpreted by Frodo long afterwards, as well as he could. Again, this is already crucial. These qualifiers are already crucial because they suggest a very important feature of all religion in the Lord of the Rings, that's number 1D, and that is to say the unfamiliarity of the hobbits with religion. They are gradually introduced to religion. Frodo and Sam don't know anything about religion, but they step by step they start cherishing the name of Elbereth, and in three key moments of the story they successfully invoke air protections, and they put them on the handout. But again, this is important, in all the three cases, the narrator emphasizes a degree of unconsciousness in the Hobbit's act. As you see there, uh, he heard himself why he did not know. So there is something which they don't fully understand. Elbereth of, of, um, is the wife of the Jupiter-like deity Manwe, number one, a, one E on the handout, who is known as the Elder King, the king of somebody like Jupiter indeed. And he's mentioned in Lord of the Rings as well in a song sung by Bilbo in Rivendell, but again, this is also important. It is in a song. It is in a song sung in an Elvish context. So this is important because this suggests that the prayer or the religion has some sort of esoteric aura to the Hobbits. It's something that they don't fully understand. As also, that's a very important point. Elves may do something with the, with the gods. They may know something about them, or perhaps the Numenorians, the Gondorians, but in general, all the other uh, characters don't know much about that. And especially on the other side, the Valar don't really seem to answer back. The Valar, if they are present, they remain, remain completely silent. Also, a very important point, these explicit references, they put them all together in on the handout, they say many, but given the size of the novel, they are really like drops in the ocean, and quite often they are overlooked. 
And yet, and I take care of the images I start to introduce, all these references shine like glimpses of a hidden light. And this image of glimpses, of glimpsing, will come back again and again because it's very important. And I'm moving to number two on the handout. Because this light of the divine is in fact much more prominent in the Lord of the Rings than these sparse glimpses, these sparse references. As one of the early readers of the Lord of the Rings said, it is a hidden, invisible present. It's invisible, but it is somehow present. As, uh, it is as if, and I'm quoting, it's like light from an invisible lamp. And what I'm going to do in the next section of the paper is to try to draw this lamp a bit into the open. And I'm moving to number 2A on the handout. So, and I will start with a passage which I think is the brightest glimpse of all in the Lord of the Rings, where we really see the presence of the Valar. And this is, comes from the denouement of the story. You may remember the ring has been destroyed. Frodo and Sam have been rescued and celebrated. But the news of the unexpected victory have not yet reached the city of Minas Tirith. That is the beautiful scene of uh, um, Faramir and Eowyn embracing in the light of the sun. But in the movie, they, unfortunately, this passage has been removed, but in the book there is a very important episode because at that point uh, you have an eagle coming to the city of Minas Tirith and the eagle sings a very important song. Uh, that's the one you have on number two A on the handout. Before the sun had fallen far from the noon out of the east, there came a great eagle flying and he brought tidings beyond hope from the lords of the west. Sing now, ya people of Minas for the realm of Sauron is ended forever. There are Tom Schiffey, a very, good, a, very um, a great talking scholar, has rightly pointed out how this is a, a almost a, a translation or an adaptation of a psalm by David. I mean, it's quite a very uh, important uh, uh, biblical uh, connotation. Now, my question is who, is, uh, who are the lords of the West who bother to send a winged messenger to announce tidings beyond hope? And some commentators, uh, perhaps some readers, uh, have taken quite often this epithet of lords of the West uh, as referring to Aragorn and the other captains of the West, what victoriously led the host of the West, as Tolkien calls it, against Mordor. But this cannot be the case, because in all the other Tolkien's works, including the Silmarillion, of course, the loss of the West is the standard epithet for the Valar. And in fact, in a couple of unpublished material, uh, Tolkien makes very clear that it is a, uh, almost a sacrilege. It's a very, very bad indeed to use this very epithet to refer to anyone else. It is like a blasphemy, Tolkien says, in one of the appendices of the Lord of the Rings. And this divine identity of the Lords of the West to send this eagle is also suggested with the standard association of the eagles with Manwe. And I put a few passages on the handout from the Silmarillion where we had explicitly, in the classical way, just like Jupiter does, we have Manwe sending eagles to rescue many, many different characters. Again, I won't have time to quote a few passages, but uh, it's quite clear how this is a very important topical uh, episode in the Silmarillion. So these Lords of the West who send messengers of tidings beyond hope, that's very important, tidings beyond hope, are thus the same valor of the Silmarillion, hidden presences who are also active in the Lord of the Rings beyond appearances. And in fact, this idea of Valar being hidden is so important that, in, again, in unpublished material, Tolkien will say that this was a lie of Sauron. It was Sauron himself who spread the lie that the Valar did not care any longer for Middle-earth. So there is something very deep about this sort of ambiguity. 
about the Valar. The truth is that the Valar do care for Middle-earth. Their activity, the Lord of the Rings, is an important narrative secret. secret. In fact, this activity goes well beyond dispatching messenger and moving to number 2B on the handout. If you turn the page, just as in classical epic, as you know, Tolkien was a classicist. He, read, he did Mots, so he did a lot of Homer, he did a lot of Virgil, he did a lot of Hesiod. So he clearly had classical patterns strongly in his mind. And of many patterns of interaction that we have in classical epic, when gods interact with human beings, are very present in a hidden way in the Lord of the Rings. One of them in particular, which is number 2B, is the one of the dreams. In classical epic, just like in the Cimmerillion, the Valar, the gods send many dreams to human and elvish characters, and normally these dreams have important uh, momentous implications. Again, I don't have time to go some of them, but uh, you may remember, for the people who read the Cimmerillion, the very important dream of Tuor, which is like one of the most crucial events of the Cimmerillion. Uh, it's also quite interesting, uh, again, for the people uh, who are a bit more into Tolkien's legendarium, that in the early drafts of the Cimmerillion, the very early drafts, the divine identity of these dreams is very explicit. In the, one of the early drafts of the Beren and Luthien story, Tolkien keeps saying, the Valar sent a dream, the Valar sent a dream, almost every two or three pages. It's almost, uh, it's really a bit too much. In the, first, in the subsequent drafts of the Cimmerillion, these references were still there, are still there, but they are less most common. The fact is that also in the Lord of the Rings, there are dreams with momentous uh, uh, narrative implication. You may remember the dream of Boromir and Faramir, first Faramir, then Boromir, which, as you can see on the handout, features uh, uh, a pale light that was lingering from the West. And since we know that the West is a place where the Valar live, it's quite clear that this dream comes from the other side. It comes from the Valar as well, just as it happens all the times in the Cimmerillion. Another very important pattern of intervention, number two, C, is what I may call his inspiration. Uh, again, for the people who know the Cimmerillion, there are many moments of inspiration in the Cimmerillion. There are, especially in the early drafts, Beren, for instance, would get the inspiration of the Valar at almost each single moment of the story. In the Lord of the Rings, there are plenty of these. They are hidden. I just quote one of them, just refer to one of them, which is uh, um, the, the, the second one, number uh, 2C. And then softly, that Sam, in a crucial moment of the story, to his own surprise, there at the vain end of his long journey, this is also important, the moment of desperation, despair, and moved by what thought in his article, then Sam began to sing. And what does Sam sing? Of course, he sings a song about Valinor. He sings a song, he doesn't really, Tolkien will say, he doesn't really understand what Sam is singing about, but it's a hymn of praise to, on the eternal, for the eternal permanence of Valinor, the Western lands, as he calls it. So we've seen two passages, two, sorry, two patterns of uh, divine interaction, or divine intervention, dreams and inspiration, but there are many others. Quickly, I can move to number 2D. In the Cimmerillion, we know that Manwe is the king of the winds, and there are very important winds, many important winds in the law in the Cimmerillion, which again have important uh, uh, momentous implications, like when, for instance, the Numenorians attack uh, Valinor themselves. Manwe sends a very uh, poisonous wind, which creates havoc. Again, there is a classical ancestry behind all this. And uh, uh, the same sort of phenomenon also happens in the Lord of the Rings. 
where the wind, wind always blows in concomitance with key positive turns in the story. Just to give you a couple of examples, it is a west wind, in fact, thanks to which the Hobbit survived the first encounter with the Black Riders, and it is the same west wind which blows away the dark storm of Mordor. And we know from the Cimmerillion that, of course, the wind are not just random things, they come, they are sent by uh, Manwen. And all this wind blowing is not just a symbol, it's not symbolic, but it is a narrative fact. Manwe is intervening in the narrative and is sending winds, just like Jupiter does all the times in uh, the classical epic. This is also confirmed by a very important association, metaphorical association between Gandalf, who is quite often referred as, as we can read, a wind from the West. The waste wind to take a body visible, even so would it appear. Why often Gandalf himself is presented as a waste wind. Uh, Theoden himself will refer to Gandalf in the same way. And of course, I introduce now the character of Gandalf because the first, most important narrative secret, if you want, to the Lord of the Rings is the identity of Gandalf, who is, of course, one of the Valar's people. He is a Maya, number three, A, on the, on the, on the handout. There is a passage from another unpublished text which spells it out very clearly. Manwe, even in the Third Age, was, told, was still not a mere observer, for with the consent of Eru, very important, the Valar sent members of their own high order, but clad in bodies as of men, their emissaries, comings in shapes weak and humble, were bidden to advise and persuade men and elves to do good. The last comer was named among the elves uh, Nithandir, Gandalf, Warm and eager was his spirit, but his joy and his swift rut were veiled in garments grey as ash, so that only those that knew him well, not the phrasing, glimpsed the flame, the flame there was within. When Sauron rose again, Gandalf also rose, and becoming the chief mover of the resistance to Sauron, was alike victorious, and brought all by vigilance and labor to that end which the Valar under the one that is above them had designed. More explicit than this doesn't get. Okay, so this is basically what is the Lord of the Rings, is the plot of the Eru and the Valar. That's the, that's the, they are the authors of the story, if you want. And Gandalf is like a spy sent in a meta-literary way by the authors themselves, uh, whose task is to sort of uh, move uh, the pawns around, if you want, as uh, um, um, Denethor will say. There is therefore a hidden narrative in uh, the Lord of the Rings, which is never revealed, but there are plenty of allusions to it. Number 3b, it's getting late, I don't have the time to go through all the different um, passages, but you can see, when, if you have time, you can roll through all of them, you will see how many allusive references there are to the divine narrative. God is present in the Lord of the Rings. He acts through the Valar, and especially through the Valar's emissary, that is to say, Gandalf. Before moving on, we we'll just will point to one thing, that's number uh, four on the handout, how there is something about Gandalf which is very important to understand uh, why, to start introducing the reason why all these uh, divine presence is hidden in the Lord of the Rings, and this has to do with a very common formula which is used by Gandalf to refer to what we may call chance or fortune. And I may just read one example uh, from 4a, that's Gandalf speaking, you have been saved, and all your friends too, mainly by good fortune, as it is called. Or, this, or another one from the following passage, 
I did more than follow the lead of chance, a chance meeting, as we say, Middle Earth. These are very interesting linguistic qualifications, as we say, as it is called, so which suggests indeed the presence, the reference to this sort of hidden divine narrative. Gandalf knows well that chance is in fact an imprecise human word, which refers in fact to the providential plan of Ilúvatar and the Valar. So for people who are linguistics, the uh, semi-nomenon, the reference of, of this is the divine plan of, the, of, of Ilúvatar. But the semi-nomenon, the language used, it is imperfect. And Gandalf uses an imperfect language. This is very important because there is some sort of, uh, if you want, uh, uh, sympathetic in the etymological sense, attention to the human beings. Gandalf speaks like the hobbits uh, while suggesting that the language is not precise. There is an imprecision of the language, which I think says much, says a lot about Tolkien's attitude to, I will say, contemporary literature, 20th century modernist, post-Christian literature, but more on this perhaps later on. I've given a few other examples uh, about this sort of use of uh, uh, elusive language. Just give another example, which I think is very clear. I'm pretty sure you're familiar with this. Beyond that, there was something else at work. That's Gantov speaking to Frodo, one of the opening chapters. I can put in no player than by saying the Bilbo was meant to find the ring. You see the same sort of phrasing, no player than by saying. There is some sort of linguistic... Uh, uh, reflection going on here. What kind of language can Gandalf use in order to talk to the hobbits? That's the best thing he can do. If you turn the page, we'll now briefly talk about another important implication of this idea of a divine narrative, of which Gandalf is well aware of, and this is the idea of life as vocation. Because if Ilúvatar and the Valar are plotting to overrule Sauron, like authors in the story, what characters need to do in a sort of meta-literary way is to identify and to adhere to this plot. Gandalf is in fact the perfect embodiment of this vocational attitude to the narrative, almost a meta-literary vocational narrative, striving to identify and follow the traces of the strange design. I'll just give you one example. Uh, that's the second one, number 5A. It's uh, Gandalf pondering on... Uh, on uh, Saruman's betrayal, and he says that this is not, is not strange. Between them, our enemies have contrived only to bring Mary and Pippi with marvelous speed in the nick of time to Fango, where otherwise they will never have come at all. This is a kind of exegesis itself of, of what Gandalf is doing. Okay? Gandalf is recognizing how providential Mary and Pippi's arrival to Fango has been. <coughs> Gandalf is not the only one who's aware of all that. Aragon, Galadriel, Aragon, and eventually the Hobbits are start to, in a meta-literary sense, becoming aware of the existence of a plot. Just put read you one example from number 5b, that's Sam talking to Sam to himself. You have then put yourself forward, you have been put forward. And as for not being the right and proper person, why? Mr. Frodo wasn't, as you might say, nor Mr. Billo. They didn't choose themselves. Again, I'm interpreting these sort of things in a narrative way, not in a symbolic way. I'm not at the moment bored with the allegorical potential of these sort of references. For me, it's interesting from the narrative point of view. These characters become aware of they start perceiving the presence of an underlying narrative designed by a hidden divine authority. There are plenty of other cases. Uh, the most important case of uh, an intrusion 
of, uh, of gods is the reincarnation of Gandalf. That's number 5C, which we may talk a lot, a lot, but again, it's getting late. I will skip it, but it's quite clear that it's Eru himself uh, who is acting, is intruding in the narrative in a way which is, uh, and we have a chapter on this in my book, uh, in, which is like theologically impossible. What Eru is doing with Gandalf is basically breaking up the whole theology of the Silmarillion. There is something, if you want, sub, completely subverses about what happens to Gandalf on this. Of me, for the moment, it is just important to say that God is present and active in the Lord of the Rings through his, if you want, lesser gods, the Valar. He and they are designed and brought about a divine narrative, which despite its significance, Tolkien, Tolkien purposefully leaves hidden and yet glimpseable. And I say purposefully because it's quite clear, that's the beauty, if you want, of his corpus, that in the early drafts of the, of the Lord of the Rings, all these references are more explicit. When he revised the text, Tolkien paid a lot of care to make it even more difficult to discern, essentially. So there is something intentional going on. I find this already very fascinating, but I know I'm very well aware that I'm talking at the Mystic Institute, so I won't go on forever and ever about the sort of narrative elements. I think it's time to address an important question, which is, if you want, the important question I want to address tonight. Why is that? Okay, what is behind, what is beneath, if you want, this politics of veiling, of cloaking, of glimpsing? Why Tolkien, in a national, purposely removed this sort of references to the presence of a divine narrative? Why did he hide God? That's the question, if you want. And moving to number six on the handout, we must say again that in order to address this question, uh, we we have to do two different things. As always in Tolkien, a question should be addressed, first of all, within the secondary world, so within the world of the Lord of the Rings, and only later within the primary world. So I will follow the same methodology. We'll start from the secondary world. Why God in the secondary world, Eru Lubata, is hidden? And there is an answer to that. We know that there is an answer, a narrative answer. And again, uh, an illuminating passage is found in an unpublished work, which is, again, Unfinished Tales. If you turn the page, uh, number six, uh, um, page six, number six A, uh, and this is what Tolkien explains. For with the consent of Eru, I already read this, but I read it again, they, the Valar, send members of their own high order, but clad in bodies as of men. And this, this is a crucial bit, the Valar did, desiring to amend the errors of old, especially that they had attempted to guard and seclude the elder, the elves, by their own might and glory fully revealed. Let's remember one important thing. The Valar are artists. The Valar are, if you want, enlightened uh, literary writers. They create art. So there is a clear meta-artistic identity about the Valar. So the Valar made a mistake at the beginning, and now they need to amend these errors. And the error is the one I was referring to before, I already mentioned. At a certain point in the narrative of the Silmarillion, the Valar summon the elves from Middle-earth and they ask them to come to Valinor. And they do that to protect them. They're afraid. They're afraid they may be destroyed by Morgoth, the Saturn-like figure of the Silmarillion. And they also want to enjoy the company. So there is a, this great desire, this great love for the otherness, for the life, divine life that it is in the created beings and they want to carry with them. But that's a mistake. As, uh, uh, because, as, we, as Tolkien explains uh, in, uh, in the following passage, 
which is the one I, so it was still in number 6B. I put the passage there. This is from the Silmarillion itself. From this summons came many wars that afterwards befell. So this is very problematic. It's something which essentially talking says it's the origin of all the problems of the Silmarillions. According to the Silmarillion, all of the problems of the Silmarillions, ultimately, not all of them, but most of them come back to this uh, summoning of the elves to Valinor. Seems a paradox, okay, but that's what Tolkien says. It, these are, so Val, the Valar had good intentions, but they had disastrous effect. Because as we are again reading the Silmarillion, at the same time, after a bit after a while, the elves started to burn with the flame of desire for freedom. And they rebelled and they went back and everything followed. Instead, going back to the passage in number 6a, with Gandalf and with this later stage of the history of Middle-earth, <laughs> now their emissaries, Gandalf, were forbidden to reveal themselves in form of majesty or to seek to rule the wills of men or elves by an open display of power. So we can see here how the decloaking of divine power is revealed as an intention, momentous decision of the Valar. You see, there was a mistake at the beginning, which is at the origin of the Cimmerian. Now the Valar uh, had to amend it. But what exactly did the Valar's error consist of? What was the problem? And we may say in the day's respect for elvish freedom. So this is something very beautiful. The elves and the human beings, but the elves in the case, are the only created beings by Iluvatar without the Valar. And what they have is freedom. Their freedom is really like a reflection of their divine origin. It's a freedom which reflects the freedom of Iluvatar, as Tolkien says in another letter. By displaying the divine power to the elves, again, in a metalitary terms, we may think like the author revealing himself to his characters by doing that, the Valar effectively dominated them and forces love on them out of fear or awe. There is a beautiful play by Chesterton, The Surprise. Anyone have read it? Recommend it? Surprise. And it's about that. I really wonder whether the Tolkien knew it because it's about an author who creates a play, but is in the first version of the play is a bit too manipulating and aggressive. It does not want the freedom of the authors, and so the play is super boring, and the, and the characters don't behave very well. In the second version of the story, it gives them freedom, and it's a mess, but it's much more entertaining. <laughs> Surprise, strongly recommended. But what is important, moving on with Tolkien, is that in Tolkien's secondary theology, because that's really what we're talking about now, there is a strict association between clocking, veiling, and freedom. By clocking their power, the Valar respect for freedom of the elves and give renounce domination. They renounce power. As you know, a very Numenian theme in Tolkien is the giving up power. And by giving up this open display of power, which has very important metalitary implications, in a sense, the Valar accepting the, are destroying the ring, if you want. Forgive the analogy. A crucial, another crucial thing, moving to number 6C is that clocking and veiling does not mean indifference or neglect. The Valar do continue to care about the inhabitants of Middle-earth, contrary to what Sauron keeps saying. Sauron keeps saying the Valar don't care about Middle-earth any longer, but that's not true. They still crave for the love and the fellowship of elves and human beings. And in a sense, if you think about it, Lord of the Rings ends, if you want, with a return to the West, with a journey of the, to the West, which does not come as the result of, if you want, violent summoning, but it comes at the end of a journey. 
a journey which may call the journey of the education, the journey of education of freedom, the journey of education of desire. At the end of the day, it's desire which draws Bilbo and Frodo to cross the ocean, that is to say, to do what the elves did at the very beginning of the Cimmerillion. And I'm referring to number 60 on the handout. It's quite clear how one of the main weapons, if you want to use positive weapon, an armed, weaponless weapon used by the Vala is desire. To desire, the Valar, if you want, instill in the creatures the, ten, the tensions to go through them. And this, if you want, again, it's the Valar correcting themselves. The Valar have learned a different method. And at the end of the day, the whole Hobbit and the whole Silmarillion are about this, are about, if you want, the development of desire. Because Frodo and Bilbo, Bilbo in the Hobbit and Frodo in the, in the Lord of the Rings, are gradually introduced to a desire, a desire to sail west and eventually yield to it at the end of the Lords of the Rings. But again, and I stress it, this journey of Frodo is not enforced to an open revelation of power, as the Valar did at the beginning of the history of Middle-earth, but comes at the end of an education of desire carried out in a hidden way. Who is the per character who kind of uh, educates the enhances like a gardener under your beautiful Tolkienian metaphor. Who is the gardener who waters the desire in the hobbits? It's Gandalf. That is to say the misery, the misery of the uh, Valar. In fact, Gandalf's task in Tolkien's narrative is not simply to guide the resistance against Sauron, but above all to rekindle human desire. And I'm, if you turn the page, I'm putting a few passages number 6C, where Tolkien explicitly characterizes Gandalf in this sense. Gandalf is the one who steals the desire for the high, and thus ultimately the desire of God, which is yet evoked in a discreet, veiled manner, respectful of the character's freedom. So this character's freedom is an important uh, secondary, in the sense of mythological, literary factor, which explains the hiding of this divine narrative. But there is more than that, there are more reasons, <coughs> number seven on the handout. The deeper reason, which is, I find it very beautiful, why the Valar respect this freedom of the creatures is not just for the creatures themselves, but because they recognize its divine origin. Elves and humans are the children of Iluvatar, and they are the fruit of the freedom of the Creator. When the Creator, when Iluvatar creates the world, he does it with the help of the other angels, the Vinar, but he keeps the authority, and he keeps the freedom to intrude, to add something. So the presence of the elves and human beings reflect the freedom of the author. And in fact, Tolkien explains in the Silmarillion, uh, the Valar were amazed at the coming of the elves because they perceived in them, and read from number seven, the mind of Iluvatar reflected anew, and they were learning a little more of his wisdom. The mind of Iluvatar, the mind of God, the creative mind of God, is uh, reflected through the introduction of new freedom, the freedom of the elves. And this is so important, and this is a very important meta-literary, but also theological implications. I'm ready for number seven, um, B on the handout, no, seven, A on the handout. It's what Tolkien explains in an important letter about this intrusion of God into the narrative. The knowledge of the creation drama, the history of Arda, was incomplete, for the creator had not revealed all. The making and nature of the children of God, else human beings, humans, were the two chief secrets. And here talking goes on. Here we meet 
the first example of the motive to become dominant in the Hobbits, that the great policies of world history, the wheels of the world, are often turned not by the lords and the governors, not the ones in power, not even by gods, but by the seemingly unknown and weak, owing to the secret life in creation, and the part unknowable to all wisdom but one, that resides in the intrusions of the children of God into the drama. Not, not the, the word secret, it's a secret life in creation. It's a secret of God, his creative freedom, but also the notion of intrusion, which is a word which comes again and again in Tolkien's letters. And I read just another passage from the following section. The one God retains all ultimate authority and reserves the right to intrude the finger of God into the story. So this key notion of intrusion is associated with the creative freedom of God, who is the only, the one holy, free will and agent. The Valar, the sub-creators, the artists, are the lords of Arda, the lords of the West. They are the masterminds of its history, but they do not know the things that lie still in the freedom of Iluvatar. So there is something which is really deep to do with the freedom of God, the way God acts in history. <coughs> By hiding his plans, God affirms his own creative freedom, which also includes the creation of his children, but also his free intrusion to the narrative. In ways, however, which are always discreet, hidden, and secret. They already, I already mentioned the reincarnation of Gandalf. That's the most explicit intrusion of God into the Lord of the Rings. But there are, in fact, many others. And I ask you to turn the page and move to number 7b on the handout. Because from a narrative perspective, this freedom of God is above all revealed in his announcement of the role played by seemingly relevant characters and events. That's if you want really the, 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 um, the typical way God acts, by announcing the weak. As we just read, the creation of the elves and men is in fact just one embodiment of a deeper narrative motive that is, the great policy of world history are turned by the seemingly unknown and weak. Because in the Silmarillion, the elves and the human beings are weaker, much weaker than the Valar. This motive, which Tolkien calls the secret life of creation, is of course at the core of the narrative of the Lord of the Rings, and of course is often highlighted in the story. And there are characters, as we just read, which of course are emblematic of this motive. There are the hobbits who are iconically small and reserved. They are neglected by the wise and the powerful, but they will be revealed as the great heroes and the saviors. And it is not casual at all that the great lover of the hobbits, as we know, is Gandalf, the incarnate angel. The two features of the hobbits in particular have attracted Gandalf's attention. That's number 7c. We see how Gandalf is really able as a divine being to recognize the action of God. If you want, that's really what the Lord of the Rings is about, to recognize the presence, uh, active presence of God in, uh, in our narratives. Uh, and there are two features in particular that are really identified by Gandalf as, okay, this is really the finger of God. First of all, their surprising unpredictability. I'm referring to number, number 7c on the handout. And even more importantly, the openness to pity and mercy for each other. Pity and unpredictability. These are the two features of the Hobbits, which Tolkien in the letter quite often explicitly associate with God. God is unpredictable and is merciful. So you see, uh, we can see here a sort of divine prefer preference for the Hobbits, which is recognized and embraced by Gandalf. 
this love of Gandalf for the hobbits is not an ornamental uh, feature of the narrative, number 7D, but rather it's related to what everything I said about the divine narrative. Gandalf acknowledges, because Gandalf in sense is a character, he's a spy or an emissary, but he's also a character, he has this kind of double identity, but by his divine origin, he's also able to recognize the presence of a mysterious divine design which has chosen the hobbits as the instruments of its narrative. Gandalf's understand, therefore, that the hobbits' apparent irrelevance is in fact the most powerful asset against Sauron. The weakness of the hobbit, not surprisingly, is a clock, is a veil, the same kind of imagery used by Tolkien to refer to this, to this particular thing. This is chosen as a clock, choose, chosen to confound the powers, which is, uh, again, another, of course, very important uh, narrative motive in The Lord of the Rings. If you think about Aragon and about Galadriel, it's all about uh, the importance of the corners of history. The Pope Francis will call it, uh, uh, I don't know how to say it, the, the scarto in Italian, so the, the rubbish bin, essentially. The waste. So the waste, basically, if you think about Aragon and the poetry about Aragon, that's, all, that's really what the theme is about. And uh, this contrast between, on the one hand, the clock, the clocking of God's narrative, and on the other hand, the folly, um, the, the way it looks like a folly to human beings is, of course, another important theme. You think about Denethor or Boromir, that's what they keep saying, that's a folly, that's a folly. But as Gandalf says, and I'm quoting again from number uh, 70 on the handout, let folly be our clock, a veil before the eyes of the enemy. All this folly, all this clocking is ultimately depending and is analogical to God's operation in the history of Middle-earth, which, of course, is also our world. So in conclusion to this section, number, uh, yeah, it's very bottom, number seven, I can say that by hiding the power, the Valar respects God's freedom in two different but related senses. They respect his freedom as it is embedded in his children, the elves are human beings created by God and created free by God. And second, they abide with the methodology of God in history in general, the life of creation, the sacred life of creation, which is characterized by secrecy, unpredictability, and the announcement of the unknown and the weak. So what I've said so far, and just drink a bit of water if you don't mind, and I'm really moving to the end. What I've said so far pertains, first of all, the secondary theology of Middle-earth. I've not stepped out the primary world yet. Everything I said is valid, of course, not just in secondary world, but first of all, in the primary world. We could certainly cross to them symbolic as representing Tolkien's own views on the primary world, but there will be another step. Of course, we can make the step, but um, for the moment, I just talk about secondary literature. So secondary world. But if we start making the step, and that's really the final section of my paper, and I'm on number, number 8A on the handout, I will say, first of all, that all this idea about clocking has, a, first of all, a very important metaliterary significance. If you want, it's a metaliterary theology. It's the way Tolkien himself reflects on <coughs> literature in general and his own literature in particular. As Tolkien says in the letter quoted in number 8A, the author, himself, Tolkien, the most modest of men, whose instinct is to clock such self-knowledge as he has, in such criticism of life as he knows it, 
and the mythical and legendary dress. You see how the phrasing is the same, it's clocking, a very important verb for Tolkien, and I strongly believe that the category of clocking as an imagery and as a notion should be applied to Tolkien's literary work per se, to the whole of Tolkien literary works, and this should be considered as a key distinctive features of his literary technique. And this is really what I first want to talk about this final section, this poetics of clocking, which is one of the most important traits of Tolkien's vision of literature, which again is strongly related to his Tolkien's high Christian concern for freedom, number eight A, sorry, a, number nine on the handout, if you turn the page. And give it a bit quick because they don't have a lot of time, but you can go back to number eight B for instance, where we see how often Tolkien refers to uh, his poetics of clocking. But let's move on, number nine, nine, to see how freedom moving to the primary world is the same key thing at the core of Tolkien's uh, poetics of clocking. First of all, the freedom I'm talking about is in this case, again, the freedom of the creator, but in Tolkien's case, the sub-creator, the literary writer, number nine. Uh, I think I'm going to write a passage, a quick passage from a letter, which is letter 153, uh, which is a letter written in response to a very strong criticism from a uh, Jesuit priest, Oxford Jesuit priest, I think if I remember correctly, was criticizing Tolkien for having, and quotes, overstepped the mark in metaphysical matters. That is to say, of having created a world which was apparently incompatible with Catholic doctrine. Tolkien got very upset, and that's what he wrote, with this very vigorous assertion of authorial freedom. Are there any bounds to a writer's job except those imposed by his own finiteness? No bounds, but the laws of contradiction, I should think. So you see, this is already a very interesting passage. The author's right to freedom, or the guarantee of free will, is in fact strictly related to clocking, because Tolkien keeps saying, so in this myth, he needs, he, um, so I lost it, uh, the right to freedom of the sub-creator, goes on, is no guarantee among fallen men that he will not be used as weakly as his free will. I am comforted by the fact that some more pious and learned than I have not found nothing helpful in this tale of its feignings as a myth. This is quite interesting because you see how the right to freedom of the sub-creator doesn't necessarily say that everything is fine, okay? You can make a mistake. You can abuse that freedom. So it's not that everything which is written down in paper or in art or literature is all right. But another very important point is that this right to freedom is associated with the idea of feigning things as myth. And I keep reading because I think the following passage is even more explicit. Free will, the freedom of the writer, is derivative and is only operative within provided circumstances. But in order that it may exist, it is necessary that the author, and this is really God, the author of the, whole, of the primary story, should guarantee it whatever betides. So in this myth, it is feigned that he gave God special sub-creative powers to certain of his highest creative beings, that is a guarantee that what they devised and made should be given the reality of creation. It's a bit, uh, for the people who don't know Simmerian well, maybe a bit uh, cryptic, but this is basically saying that in the law, the Simmerian, there is the promise, God has promised to his sub-creative beings that whatever they want to devise will become real. 
And this is really the freedom. And with this freedom can be abused because we have Morgoth who abuses the freedom. But this freedom remains there. So we see here our freedom and sub-creation are strictly related. God cherishes the freedom of the sub-creator. He cherishes the freedom of the artist. And in fact, walking a step forward, sub-creation as such has freedom at its fundamental function. And I read from the following passage, in the same letter, which deals with the same problem, I should have said the liberation from the channels the creator is known to have used already is the fundamental function of sub-creation, attribute to the infinity of his potential variety, and this is very beautiful, one of the ways in which indeed it is exhibited. The freedom of the sub-creator, it is a way, one of the ways in which the power of God it is exhibited. Again, a beautiful, fantastic paradox. To unpack it a bit, I could say that God, according to Tolkien, continues his creative freedom, his variety of his creative freedom, through the individual freedom by enhancing the individual freedom of the artist, who, who as we read, has no boundary within his own sub-created world. To impose boundaries will be to limit the freedom of the author and thus transitively the freedom of God, paradoxically. God has created and cherished the freedom of the artist, and so Tolkien strongly reacts with any kind of attempt at limiting that freedom. Subcreation has to do certainly with the reality of creation. It deals with reality, has been promised reality by God, but this must be feigned in myth, and it must be, as I read, exemplified in unfamiliar embodiment. It must be clocked. So paradoxically, clock, clocking is again strictly related with the freedom of the artist, which is itself a way through which the freedom of God is revealed. Clocking, and I stress, is thus both the limit and the guarantee of authorial freedom. Because you need, you cannot, if you try to, if you talk, you will say, to say two things too explicitly, you will start going to the primary world. You will lose your, if you want, privilege. You have a privilege, but only within the secondary world. To express truth in open, explicit, non-clock forms will be, in a sense, to betray and overstep the artist's missions. As Tolkien says in a very important text, myth and fairy story must, as all art, reflect and contain in solution elements of moral and religious truth or error, but not explicit, not in the known form of the primary world. It must be clocked, we may say. So you see how many freedoms are involved in this poetics of clocking. And there is another very important freedom, uh, which is at stake, again, staying still on the primary plane, that's number 10 on the handout, and this is the, reader, the freedom of the reader. Clocking is a way to respect also the freedom of the reader for talking in two related senses. First of all, that's number 10a, clocking protects the reader's freedom from the author's domination. In the read, I cordially dislike allegory, famous passage, in all its manifestations. I much prefer history, true or faint, with its varied applicability to the thought and experience of readers. Of course, this is a very famous passage, but what I like is the following bit. I think that many confuse applicability with allegory. Apart from the jargon, what Tolkien says, but the one applicability, what he does, resides in the freedom of the reader, and the other in the purpose domination of the author. This dichotomy, freedom versus domination, as you know, is a very important motive in the secondary world of Tolkien, where, of course, uh, we, find, uh, we find it everywhere, essentially. 
uh, again, I don't want to go on talking uh, against uh, Allegro for too much. Okay, for me, it's important simply to point out how there is an analogy between this contrast, freedom and domination, uh, in the primary sense. But let me also stress that this kind of uh, giving up domination of the author does not mean that the sub-creator is not concerned with the truth and even with the didactic edification of his readers. Tolkien uses the word didactic. Tolkien says that his literature is going to edify the readers. Okay, so this is very beautiful, I think, because Tolkien, if you want, is opposing an approach to literature which is functional, if you want, but the center is not giving up with the function of literature. Okay, it's kind of a, really trying to navigate a middle way because it's what it says, I will claim, and if you turn the page, I'm reading from number 10, uh, page 10, uh, top of the page, I will claim to have as one object the elucidation of truth and the encouragement of good morals in the real world. Tolkien considers himself a didactic writer, okay? But in a way which is respectful of the freedom of the reader. Moving forward, okay, so you have seen in one sense why the freedom of the reader is protected. But it's protected not just in this sense. It is not just protected from the domination of the author, but it is also protected by clocking by the, from the uh, domination of the reader themselves. Paradoxically, the clocking of literature is a, a medicine given to the um, domination of the reader on himself, on themselves. That is to say, thanks to the literary clocking, the reader also uh, is also so the, the literature also enhances the reader's freedom. And this idea of uh, enhancing the reader's freedom is related to the beautiful idea of recovery. He gave, uh, as you know, a very important lecture in 1939 at the University of St. Andrews, which is called Fairy Stories. And uh, in this beautiful lecture, which I strongly recommend reading for the people who have not read it, uh, Tolkien explains that the greatest danger, and I'm referring to number 10B on the handout, the greatest danger for anyone, but also for the reader of, of, of literature in particular, uh, the greatest danger is to become slave, slave of tightness, of familiarity, of possessiveness. It is to say of an approach to reality which is possessive. You can dominate reality. This is a problem. And how, uh, how does Tolkien uh, uh, fight against that? Indeed, through literature, through fairy, through fantasy literature. In fact, Tolkien explains this possessiveness, this domination was not the way we were meant to say reality. And in fact, with this kind of approach, we miss, we don't realize the beauty and the enjoyment of uh, um, reality. And especially we don't understand that reality is other. Just like uh, the Vala's problem with uh, their summoning to the Valino had to do with their incapacity to accept the otherness of the else. In the same way, human beings uh, of any age and especially readers of any age, uh, always fall into the trap of losing the otherness of literature, the wonder and the beauty. The purpose of creative fantasy is to recover all this. By clocking, as Tolkien says, in unfamiliar and fantastic forms, and I read from number uh, 10b. We need recovery. We should look at the green again and be startled anew by blue and yellow and red. Recovery is a regaining as think, uh, regaining a clear view, seeing things as we are or we are meant to see them, as things apart from ourselves. We need, in any case, 
to clean our windows so that things seem clearly may be freed, you see the same kind of language, from the drab law of tartanism of familiarity, from possessiveness. In this passage, and also later on in Onferi's story, this sort of recovery, which is, if you want, the main purpose of uh, the literature that Tolkien writes, is equated to a liberation. It's really the liberation of the captive, that Tolkien will say in another passage. The reader is, in fact, not only exposed to the intellectual domination of the author, but also to the slavery of his own intellectual and even religious biases, superficialities, and ideologies. The method through which literary clocking preserves the written freedom from both the author's and his own intellectual domination, just like in the Cimmerillion, is through the announcement of desire, number 11 on the handout. As we saw before in Tolkien's Secondary War, the Valas clocking goes hand in hand with the announcement of the desire in the Elves or in the other characters. This desire in such a divine for the divine. This is how the Valar attracts the Elves to their divine reality while respecting their freedom. And there is a very clear connection between clocking and desire, which is traceable in many passages. I just read a couple of quotes from uh, number 11. The motion that moves me supremely and I find a small difficulty in evoking is the heart, heart-wrecking sense of the vanished past. A story must be told or there'll be no story, and yet it is the untold story that are most moving. Mountains seen far away, never to be climbed. Distant trees never to be approached, unless in paradise. So you see how by glimpsing something in a way, the way the road is open that will be completed in paradise. As Tolkien says in the other quote, part of the attraction of the Lord of the Rings is due to the glimpses of a large history in the background. An attraction like that of viewing far off an unvisited island or seeing the towers of a distant city gleaming in a sunlight mist. You see, it's the veiling, if you want. To go there is to destroy the magic unless new unattainable vistas are again revealed. So you need the veiling because you need to continue the journey that leads to God. At the core of the Lord of the Rings, there is therefore a tantalizing experience of glimpsing something distant, vaguely perceivable, and yet veiled. This evokes, as we just read, in the reader, heart-wrecking longing for something unattainable, communicated to a sudden sense of endless untold stories, as Tolkien says in another letter. From the technical point of view, this is achieved through a lavish use of omissions, of lacunae, of allusions, and above all, through the uh, elimination of uh, explicit connection between the Lord of the Rings and the divine narrative. The divine narrative remains hidden. This is a technique, if you want, a literary technique that many people, including a fellow, a friend from Keyboard College, was written a book on this very literary technique. Hiding is a very effective literary technique, but I think also there are very important theological implications behind this idea of clocking, of, uh, of an incomplete, uh, vague literature, which are again are related to the freedom of another important free agent, that is God himself. And this will really be the last point in my paper. Thanks for coming with me so far. I'm almost done. So as we've seen before, number 12 on the handout, in Tolkien's secondary universe, the notion of literary incompleteness or clocking is strictly revealing, is strictly related to the divine in two senses, which we saw just to sum up a bit. First, the creation 
in the history of the world of art are described as the artistic <laughs> work of God. It's quite clear that it's a, a drama of God, the whole history of Arda, the Valar and all the other rational beings in different order play a part in this drama, and yet they do not have a full picture of it. This is very important. There is not a single character, including Gandalf or the Valar, who have a complete knowledge of uh, uh, the a full picture, if you want, of the drama of God. God hid the fullness of his design in order to allow space for the free intrusion of his finger and thus preserve his ongoing creative freedom. Second important sense, the stories of Middle-earth are constantly described by Tolkien as being inherently incomplete and fragmentary. There is this element, idea of fragmentation, which I think is all very, very important. The complete fruition of these stories in the, in the Lord of the Rings and the Silmarillion is only possible in the blessed land of Valinor, where the elves live in full communion with the divine. That's where the hobbits go. One of the reasons which is given um, to explain Bilbo's decision to cross the ocean is to read the full stories that he so much loved. And this idea that there is a place where everything is fulfilled and that the incomplete stories we hear nowadays are useful to uh, um, um, create, to uh, instill in us the desire to read the full story is also, of course, very important in the Tolkien's primary, if you want, uh, theology. As Tolkien explains in a letter, there is a place called heaven where the good here unfinished is completed, and where the stories unwritten and the hopes unfulfilled are continued. So we see here how the secondary world and the primary world start to merge, if you want. So far, to a certain extent, they kept it divided, but actually is the same world. There is, in fact, something which connects these two ideas, which I just mentioned, and it is the fact that God is the supreme storyteller. He is the only author of a complete and full, satisfying story, number 12B on the handout. The creative activity of human storytellers is analogical to that of God. It is talking, we'll say, sub-creative, but given its non-divine secondary nature, it can only produce incomplete, fragmentary, and ultimately unsatisfying stories. That's why at the Lord of the Rings, the feeling that we get is not the happy ending of a Hollywood movie, okay? There is some nostalgia, some longing. That's really what Tolkien wanted to achieve. Be yet, all these incomplete stories draw life from the one story of God. As Tolkien says in a beautiful poem, they are like fragments reflect, refracting a divine light. And it is because of this that these human stories are able to evoke a heart-wrecking desire for the full vision of the light of God, which is partially reflected in the times conveyed to the glimpses of its truth, the stories that we read. An important implication of this idea of God as the only complete, perfect author, which brings us back to the original question on which I started, where is God, is that human literature cannot express God in open, explicit, unclothed terms, number 12C on the handout. Trying to do this will be almost an offense against the nature of God and his creative freedom. It will mean to betray and overstep the vocation of literature. To go to the top of the mountains is to destroy the magic, Tolkien says, because the magic is in the, is in the desire, not in the secondary finite object which generates it. The finite object uh, instills a divine desire. It is really this divine desire which matters. 
According to Tolkien, the desire evoked in his works and any desire in general is an embodiment of the universal human longing for the transcendent. It is symbolic, as we just read, for a place and time where the relationship between God and man was immediate and unclocked. Eden, number 12D. Certainly, Tolkien says, there was an Eden, Eden, on this very unhappy earth. We all long, we all long for it, and we are constantly glimpsing it. Art and literature are thus for Tolkien supreme forms in which desire for Eden is expressed at a kindle, number 12E. In these and many other respects, artistic creation are analogous to and continue the primary creation of God, whose purpose for Tolkien is to generate in man the longing for a fellowship with the Creator, who yet remains hidden and clocked in respect of the freedom of his creatures. This, we may say, was Tolkien's destiny and his sense from an early age to kindle a new light to some spark of fire that had been granted to him. <clears throat> to conclude, Tolkien's poetics of clocking, which is traceable above all in the hiding of the divine narrative, the love of the rings, is related to creative freedom, the life of creation, the secret life of creation. The creative freedom of the writer, who is called to express truth in the clock address of sub-creation, the freedom of the reader, whose dormant religiosity, if you want, just like that of the hobbits, does not just need preaching, preaching is of course important, but he also needs a rekindling or recovery of desire, brought about by unfamiliar, artistic, and indeed inspired clocked forms. And finally, the creative freedom of God, the primary writer of the story, which a secondary writer respects, acknowledges and evokes by purposefully declining to say all in open primary terms. So Tolkien's creative work has certainly something to do with God, but not because it openly talks about him or about doctrines uh, associated to him. Rather, Tolkien considers his own artistic creation as a vessel, an inspired fruit of God's own creative power, who actually participates in the artistic event. But there may be a topic for another talk. The event, the literary <coughs> event, the mystery of literary creation, as Tolkien calls it, involves an interplay between the freedom of the writer and the freedom of God for the love and the freedom of the reader. I'm now done, but since uh, we are living in a dark world, I have, if you don't mind, I will just read a final quote, which somehow relates everything I've been saying today with the times we are living in this 2022, dark and bleak 2022. Because this idea of uh, respecting the freedom of God has a lot to do with being able uh, look, uh, uh, to recognize God's intrusion, God's presence in the world. Paradoxically, there is this mysterious uh, way God acts, according to Tolkien, is a source of hope, is the greatest source of hope that we can have. And I will briefly read from uh, a letter from number 13b, which was written, uh, two letters combined, but I will conclude with just with that. They don't, need, uh, they don't need a lot of comments, but after everything I said today, you see how everything that we read and in the Lord of the Rings and what, we try to, and what I tried to talk about today can also offer a bit of hope to our world, our world dominated by world. These letters yeah, were written in 1944-1945, so if you want, one of the darkest periods of the uh, 19th century, when uh, indeed despair was uh, widespread in uh, all of Europe and not just Europe. And talk is really mourning the present. Too many child, uh, when it is all over, and I would just conclude with that. So just read these letters and then we conclude. When it is all over, 1944, 
Will ordinary people have any freedom left or will they have to fight for it? Or will they be too tired to resist? Too many are childless. But I suppose, very prophetic, that the one certain result of it all is a further growth in the great standardized amalgamations with the mass-producing motions and emotions. And this is also important, what kind of mass manias the Soviets can produce remains for peace and prosperity and the removal of war hypnotism to show. Not quite so small as the Western ones. Perhaps, however, it's always been going on in different terms. And you and I, my son Christopher, belong to the evil defeated, never altogether uh, subdued side. As far as we can go back, the noble part of the human mind is filled with the thought of peace and goodwill and with the thought of its loss. We shall never recover it. But this is not the way of repentance, which works spirally and not in a closed circle. We may recover something like it, but on a higher plane. Of course, I suppose that subject to the permission of God, the whole human race is free not to rise again, but to go to perdition and carry out the fall to its bitter bottom. In a certain period, the present, notably one, then seemed not only a likely event, but imminent. And yet, these are dark thoughts, and yet one knows that there is always good, much more hidden, much less clearly discerned, seldom breaking out into recognizable, <laughs> visible beauties of word or deed or face. Not even when in fact sanctity, far greater than the visible advertised wickedness, is really there. As in the former dark age, the Christian church alone will carry over any considerable tradition of a higher mental civilization, that is, if it is not driven down into new catacombs. Gloomy thoughts about things one cannot really know anything of. The future, think about everything I said today, is impenetrable, especially to the wise, for what is really important is always hidden from contemporaries, and the seeds of what is to be are quietly germinating in the dark in some forgotten corner, while everyone is looking at Stalin or Hitler or Putin and someone else. No man can estimate what is really happening at the present, sub specie eternitatis, with the eyes of God. All we do know, and to a large extent by direct experience, that evil labors with vast power and perpetual success in vain. They prepare always only the soil for unexpected good to sprout in. So it is in general, and so it is in our lives. Thank you.